0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Texas Supreme Court issuing a stay on a ruling in a critical abortion case that would have allowed a pregnant woman to have an abortion because her life is in danger, as is her future fertility. The recently impeached Texas Attorney General with no medical qualifications has decided the 20-week pregnant woman does not have a life-threatening condition and is threatening her and medical facilities and staff with felony prosecution and fines. Joining us to discuss the casual cruelty of delaying a life-saving procedure is Jane Cohen, a professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law who teaches in the area of feminist theory. She's the author of Abortion and Reproductive Rights in the Oxford Handbook of Legal Studies. Then we'll examine the emerging campaign issue of dictatorship, which has Trump's toady, Fox's Hannity, doing damage control again as Trump repeatedly refused to answer whether he has dictatorial plans, eventually suggesting he would be a dictator only on day one. Joining us is Thomas Nichols, a staff writer at The Atlantic, and a Professor Emeritus of National Security Affairs at the U.S. Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University. He is the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters, and Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. We will discuss his latest article in the forthcoming edition featuring 24 writers at The Atlantic offering a detailed warning about the future, what Trump's second term could look like. Then finally, with Biden vetoing a UN resolution to stop the war in Gaza because he is sticking with Netanyahu like Vice President Humphrey stuck with LBJ in 1968, we will speak with Michael Kazin a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of Dissent Magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History, And his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. We'll discuss his article at the New Republic, I Opposed Humphrey in 68, All I Did Was Help Prolong the Vietnam War, and how it relates to young voters today helping elect Trump by turning away from Biden. And before we begin, we are asking you to help keep Background Briefing completely independent, commercial-free and corporate-free, without paywalls or constant fundraising, as we keep providing you with a daily briefing which is free to the public and accessible to all those who are not in a position to contribute. You can make a tax-deductible donation to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air and online with this critical 2024 election year ahead in which the fate and future of American democracy itself will be decided. We are in a fight between those who no longer believe in democracy and those who have to defend it or see it die. We barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th, and like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do. On day one, he will invoke the Insurrection Act and round up his enemies. So help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now, Jane Cohen, who is a professor of law at the University of Texas School of Law, who teaches in the area areas of feminist theory. She's the author of Abortion and Reproductive Rights in the Oxford Handbook of Legal Studies. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jane Cohen.
1: Hi. as a matter of foreground briefing, I don't teach in this area anymore. I haven't for a long time, but there's no possibility of not thinking about it. I will say that.
0: Well, you can't help thinking about what's happening to Kate Cox, a 31-year-old mother of two in Dallas, Fort Worth, who was granted a uh, 14-day temporary restraining order against the state's abortion ban so that she could legally terminate an unviable pregnancy, but then the recently impeached Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton steps in and petitions the Supreme Court who put a stay on it, and she's already 20 weeks pregnant. And so this will delay a situation which has already been delayed for months because she's been going to different emergency rooms trying to get an abortion. So this seems like an exercise in casual cruelty to me. How does it strike you?
1: I don't think it's casual in the least, so we have a disagreement at the beginning. Um, This is very well prepared, and uh, it's only been a matter, you know, rather a long time, 50 years, since a pregnant woman came along who actually was in a position for whatever set of circumstances, including having the resources, to be able to go to court while pregnant and ask a judge for aid in ending an abortion. It's remarkable. It's taken half a century to get back to this point. And um, you may know, I mean, ironically or otherwise, that the last time this came around, uh, it was also a Texas woman who went to court in Roe versus Wade. So um, Texas seems to have a deep set of fingerprints in these issues that uh, are continuing, continuing to um, find themselves trying to manipulate the landscape of abortion. I would say. Um, But what I wanted to say, actually, about my past, I I need to say one thing to begin with. This is really important. and That is, in any remarks that I make about this, I'm not speaking on behalf of my institution. I'm not speaking on behalf of other people. Everything that you're going to hear is from me on my own account. And um, we just have to be clear about that, right? Sure. So, yeah, good. Okay, great. So, Um, So there's this interesting, and I want to say this, and that is since the beginning of my interest in this subject, um, I've been consistent in thinking about the fact that as a moral community, um, we grant all sorts of licenses to members of our community to make um, decisions that involve life and death. And we do it every day. And that's what's casual and interesting, that piece. So I want to reattach your idea of you know, something going on that's casual to these events. So we hand um, guns over to gun owners, and we let people lend guns to each other, and then we allow them to use those guns under all sorts of circumstances. Perhaps the easiest to understand morally and to defend morally is uh, in condition, under conditions of self-defense. In a lot of those situations, the person who um, ends up on the floor bleeding out can't describe the other side of this story. So it's the person with the gun who makes the decision about what self consists of in another kind of situation. If I'm driving a car and a truck is coming right at me, having made a wrong turn or in the wrong lane, I can swerve and hit someone. It could be a pedestrian pedestrian or someone in another car. Um, and if that person is injured or, or dies, Um, it's taken that that's within the sort of scope of what I might have to do as a driver. And I'll probably walk away from that situation without liability, even though I'm the person who injured or killed that innocent person. And then we have situations, all sorts of situations involving surgeries, right? Like if my mother has a necrotic limb from diabetes or something like that, and I'm the person who signs the permission for the surgery to remove the limb, otherwise known as an amputation, Um, my mother might not make it off the operating table, but that's considered to be within the scope of my authority as the person who's her um, authorized agent, right? In all of those situations, we have moral agency to do what society has authorized us to do. I used the word license before, which is a little too strict a term. But we go around you know, engaged in all of these actions, and um, and so it goes, right? I mean, all mm-hmm. of us do. We're all at each other's disposal in this way. So telling, you know, for the state to say with regard to women, and I want to specifically think about Katie Cox here, as you point out, a woman who's carrying a dead baby, that she needs to keep carrying the dead baby at the expense of not only her health, but possibly her life, and possibly the well-being of her two children and the person she's married to for all of these close people in her life some of whom she's responsible for she's not allowed to put above the quotes interests or something of someone who's already dead there's something wrong with that it's just it's so startling it's so um it's so unintuitive morally not just unattractive but unintuitive because it doesn't belong to the community of values that we were talking about or I was mentioning a few minutes ago and all these other instances in which we give people permission to do what they need to do to save their own lives.
0: Well, but the recently impeached uh, Attorney General Paxton is hardly a paragon of virtue. And uh, this is pointing out the hypocrisy of the right to life, the the examples you just gave us. And he is claiming that Paxton alone has the power to value the unviable fetus of uh, Katie Cox's pregnancy more highly than Katie Cox's own life and the life of her future children.
1: Well, that's what's so, I mean, whether it's he on his own or whether it's all the people who stand behind him, everybody who after all, voted for this legislation that he's standing on as his platform. Um, It's the court itself, the Supreme Court of Texas, having set aside the judge's ruling. There's a large chorus here. So yeah, he's directing the chorus in some sense, but all of these other people are in it. I, I can't fairly say that he's directing the chorus with regard to the Supreme Court of Texas. They're their own chorus. But Having said that, and so is the legislature for that matter. So there's a large group of people here who are implicated in what you and I are talking about. And what's truly remarkable is the people who ought to stand at the moral center of this universe, who are this woman, Katie Cox, her children, the people she cares about so deeply and wants to live with, wants to take care of, the future child she wants to have, and that's why she wants to protect her fertility, um, her husband these people you would think would stand at the very center of this moral universe and they've been decentered and there's something very peculiar about that when you compare it to all the other instances in which we leave people centered in their own moral universes when they have to make life and death decisions so it seems so strange does it not
0: Well, it certainly does. And you're suggesting that it's not casual cruelty, but deliberate cruelty. And it's the way that these men think, and it's the way that the people that voted for them think. And how does that gel with the national polls that say that over 60% of Americans are in favor of reproductive health choices on the part of women? Yeah,
1: no, it... It doesn't seem to gel, does it? Um, I want to mention one other aspect of this that I'm pretty fascinated by in the moment. So this is not my, I'm not now describing my long-term interest. I'm describing something that's much more recent. And that is, um, we have a former vice president of the United States who made a run for the presidency recently. His name is Mike Pence. He has friends and enemies the way everybody else in these situations do, and When he decided not to continue his campaign, he said to the world, quotes, this is my time. And I was really struck by that, given his religious, you know, um, inclinations. So he's oftentimes spoken of, you know, receiving wisdom from above and so forth. And if you believe that people have times in their lives when it's their turn and other times when it isn't, and that that comes from somewhere else, perhaps from above, then you have to wonder about a pregnancy that can't manage because the fetus, it's not the time for that fetus. That fetus isn't going to survive in the world. And the question is, what is our obligation towards a fetus that isn't going to survive in the world? Um, And I want to put this in very pointed terms. If an abortion is the killing of an innocent, unborn life, Katie Cox is carrying a dead or dying baby who isn't going to survive, then she's not killing an unborn life. The life is already gone. The life is soon to end. But it's her life that that, that, that
0: we're talking about, aren't we?
1: No, we aren't yet. I'm still talking about the fetus. Because um, the fetus isn't going to... It's not the fetus's time, is my point. This fetus isn't going to live in the world. This fetus does it's not the time for this fetus. She wants to protect her life, and she wants to be able to have another child who will be able to live in the world. and I, I'm not speaking here about rights because I think that for most people, you know they don't they don't frame these issues in terms of maybe they do these days in terms of right, not right. They might frame them intuitively in terms of what seems to be just what's the what's the story here, what's really going on? And I'm now going to turn to her. She wants to have a complete life in the same sense of all the other people I described earlier to whom we attribute moral agency. They can make decisions about what's in their best interest when their interest in life is deeply threatened. And somehow she's not able to do that. Women who are pregnant are not able to do that. And you keep pointing out to me, and I'm now going to take your suggestion on board, that there's this man who doesn't know her at all, doesn't know her children, who can't possibly care about her family the way she can. And he's making a decision about what's right or wrong in her situation and that of other women. And that does seem decentered morally. That's the point that that's where you and I, I think, would join position sure. in regard to this. Isn't that the case?
0: But Paxton also doesn't have medical training yet he has told the texas supreme court that ms cox has failed to demonstrate that she has a life-threatening medical condition related to a pregnancy yeah. or that her symptoms place her at risk of death or major bodily harm i'm quoting from his his petition to the supreme
1: court well he didn't make up that language and he didn't make up that position he relied on someone who, as I understand it, does have medical training to make that judgment. But the someone has never examined this woman. She's never examined this woman's body. And he's taking this expert's advice about a woman she's never examined in preference to the people who are her medical providers. And that's, I mean, that in itself is decentered. And here I'm not speaking... So much morally as socially. when we go to a doctor, we trust we expect to be able to rely on that doctor's judgment and to and to speak to that doctor as a moral equal, you know, as someone who's entitled to that judgment, but who's also going to hear us and listen to us. and none none of that is possible if your attorney general is speaking to someone who's never met you about your medical condition and making a judgment about it, that's, a, that's extraordinary, right? It's not only extraordinary, what is it? I mean, we don't even have a, a way of thinking about that, really.
0: Well, but he's also going to, he's warning her and the hospitals and yes. the hospital staffs that, yes. uh, quote, I will not insulate you or anyone else from civil and criminal liability, and that yes. involves uh, penalties of at least $100,000 per violation. And fell into prosecution. 10,000.
1: No, 100,000. Oh, it's 100,000 in the case of hospitals. So one of the things that's really interesting about all this is um, you were talking, I think, a little bit earlier about motivation. So if you look at the language that's in the statute that would allow Katie Cox, perhaps, to receive this care in the place she lives, in Texas, in the Dallas area, There's an interesting feature of this, and that is um, the statute doesn't allow an exemption for a fatal fetal anomaly. So the fact that she's carrying a dead baby, that in itself is not a basis for relief from this pregnancy. But if something creates a quote, serious risk of substantial impairment of a major bodily. Uh, function, then she is presumably under the statute entitled to the relief of an abortion. Now, this is really odd because it's the dead fetus that is creating the possibility of uh, lifetime impairment, even if she were to survive. Her fertility would be lost or has already been compromised. In the case of some of the other women who are suing, their fertility was compromised, possibly to the extent of producing lifetime infertility, by the circumstances of their pregnancy, so what you have is a statute that doesn't allow the underlying cause to justify the abortion, but allows the effect to to justify the abortion, having been produced by that same cause. Now, let me go this way, if you'll if you'll allow me. Um, all of that is lawyer stuff. You know what counts for purposes of this pregnancy as a justification or an excuse. It's all written in legalese. Doctors can't possibly make their way through that. Those people can't. People can't make their. And I guess ordinary people are doctors, and doctors are ordinary people. So that, this isn't written for doctors. This isn't written for you know even hospital medical communities. This is written for the general counsel's office of the hospital. This is written for you know some lawyer who has to figure out whether an individual doctor is going to get sued or somebody in the community is going to be able to you know, monetarily benefit. But this has nothing to do with the practice of medicine as such. It's not written for doctors. So what do we have here? We have lawyers talking to other lawyers about a woman who's been excluded from the conversation. And that's, you know, I mean, as, as a structure, Uh, The woman and the doctor were at the center of a conversation in Roe versus Wade. The woman has now been excluded from the conversation and the doctor has been rendered incompetent. So we now have doctors, you know, doctors are out of the picture. Now it's going to be insurance companies and lawyers trying to figure out what these words mean and putting them before judges to decide. And I want to add one more piece, if I may, on this point. Okay. Okay. So, in when the um, when the Supreme Court decided the case Dobbs, that all of this flows from, if you will, um, Ken Paxton sent out an, something called an advisory on Texas law on the reversal of Roe versus Wade, and in the very first paragraph, he talked about the fact that Roe itself was more, quote these are his words more, was morally bankrupt, and that part of the problem was that the decision was made by, quotes unelected judges. And so now, at the end of the day, we have uh, a new kind of legislation and an attorney general who are also, um, at least based on what, I'm, what I've offered you, morally bankrupt. But the case went before an elected judge. We no longer have the situation that he was fulminating against in his unhappiness over Roe. And he's taken the decision away from an elected judge in order to have everybody else, you know, look at it and scramble it and worry about it, but not the pregnant woman, not the doctor. And now, if you'll allow me to put this third piece in place, not the elected judge. So all the people who institutionally should belong to the center of the story and the woman herself They're all out of the picture relative to this new narrative of uh, lawyers talking to other lawyers beyond the scope of the conversation that Roe, I want to use a sort of 25 cent term here, that Roe instantiated, that Roe put at the center of things, which was deliberative autonomy for the woman in consultation with her chosen medical providers. And that's what's not the center of the story anymore in this moral black hole that we now live in in texas in regard to these matters
0: well jane cohen i thank you very much for joining us here today
1: i hope that's somewhat helpful
0: it is indeed Um, and again i've been speaking with jane cohen who's a professor of law at the university of texas school of law who teaches in the area of feminist theory and she is the author of abortion and reproductive rights in the oxford handbook of legal studies We're going to take a brief station break. We're back examining the emerging campaign of dictatorship and what Trump's second term could look like.
2: Why don't you take another little piece of my heart? Why don't you take?
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Thomas Nichols, a staff writer at The Atlantic and a professor emeritus of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet-Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and at Georgetown University, and is the author of The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge, and Why It Matters. And his latest book is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And his latest article at The Atlantic is What Trump's Second Term Could Look Like. Welcome to Background Briefing, Thomas Nichols. Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Tom. And last week, The Washington Post editor-at-large, Robert Kagan, wrote a a long essay arguing that if Trump got a second term, it would be essentially American dictatorship led by Trump. And, of course, it seemed to go viral, and several people sent me copies of it. And then, of course, it did prompt Sean Hannity on Fox News to bring it up with Trump in a softball way, where he asked him, would would he be a dictator? And Trump avoided answering the question a couple of times and eventually said, yeah, I'd, I'd be a dictator on day one. So... The Atlantic has put together a group of writers, including you, to explore this issue, which, of course, Liz Cheney is also discussing on her book tour, saying that we're sleepwalking into dictatorship. Where do you come down on this, Tom?
3: Well, I agree. And I think part of the reason you're seeing so many people talking about it, whether it's the writers in this um, special edition of The Atlantic that's going to be out uh, shortly, or... um, Liz Cheney or Robert Kagan or any of the rest of us is because we're proceeding from things we've already seen Trump do and say. This isn't hypothetical. This isn't, um, you know, people sitting around and saying, well, what could he do? What's possible? He's telling us what he's going to do. Um, He's not kidding. And he's very serious about it. And more importantly, uh, because, you know, Trump is a person, I think, of very limited competence and intelligence. But the people around him are um, going to be a a bit smarter this time around. They've learned from the first term, and they're not going to make the same mistakes twice. This time, um, they're going to put people and plans in place right at the outset, and um, there won't be any more adults in the room uh, like there were in the first term. So I I think the reason you're seeing all of this is because all of us are seeing – an obvious threat coalescing in front of us that um and I think we're all trying to warn our fellow citizens about it,
0: so we barely escaped a coup attempt back on January the sixth. Why do you think it is that that doesn't resonate more and become a an obvious flag for somebody with dictatorial tendencies or or intentions
3: well the the frustrating thing is that there is a normalcy bias among most people, and certainly in the media, um, January 6th to a lot of Americans already seems like a long time ago, and that because we survived it, uh, therefore it wasn't that serious. And of course, Trump's supporters are either in denial. I think the rank and file um, Trump supporters are just in denial. Um, if you talk to them, they'll say, well, it, it was it just things got out of hand or the police started it, it wasn't, no one really tried to overthrow the government, nobody, you know, wasn't that organized. But <clears throat> I think some of his other supporters have been very clever about this to say, um, you know, that's, that was a one-off, this terrible event, and, um, you know, we'll never really know what happened. And I think most people, because of this normalcy bias, you know, the, the, the normalcy bias is the idea that things just can't change that much. Because that makes people anxious, you know, tomorrow is going to be a lot like today. Um, And so people don't want to imagine how bad it could get and how quickly it could get bad. And so they say, well, you know, could it really be a problem? And I think that's to go back to our first part of this conversation. I think that's why you're seeing so many people like me and the Atlantic folks and Liz Cheney and others writing about it to say, no, try to imagine this. Try to get your arms around this, because this is a real thing that's happening.
0: Well, of course, a lot of people dismiss Trump as saying, well, you know, he doesn't really have any ideology, except ideology of greed and grifting and self-promotion. And while all of that is true, I think they underestimate the man's willpower. He literally lost an election, and then he willed an alternative reality that said that he won and the other guy cheated. And it's metastasized into a core belief that's captured the entire Republican Party. And now he's got his agent there, who's the Speaker of the House, who led the charge to try and justify Trump's manufactured delusion, which should have been laughed out of town. McCarthy and and McConnell both condemned it, but never followed up on it. And to my mind, I think historians are going to look at that moment just after January the 6th and wonder how come this big lie became the kind of core belief of the Republican Party hoisted by one man who was completely unable to accept his own defeat. So I think they underestimate this man's willpower.
3: I, well, you know, I, I, I don't think it does any good to make him 10 feet tall. It's not a matter of willpower he, it's single-mindedness um he has enough money and enough insulation and enough supporters that he can afford to keep putting this lie out um i don't think he believes it um i think you know at this point maybe he said it enough times that he, he's starting to believe in himself but we have plenty of evidence and i think jack smith has uncovered plenty of evidence that he knew he lost, that that the people around him knew he lost. And that's what makes this especially difficult, because the rank-and-file folks, I, I agree with you, Ian. He has kind of done the Jedi mind trick and waved his hand and said the election was stolen. And I think otherwise intelligent people have simply decided to believe that because they, they can't accept the reality that they're a minority in this country. Um, but the other people who are empowering Trump and supporting him it's not, it's not that Trump is some sort of majestic example of willpower. It's that he has a lot of people around him who know better, but have decided to go along with this and empower this lie because it's really their only hope. It's the way they stay in power. Um, there is not a, a prayer in hell that Kevin McCarthy or Elise Stefanik or anybody else, uh, I doubt even the speaker, I doubt even Mike Johnson. I, there are very few people left who really believe that this election was stolen, but they all have to kind of agree to maintain this nonsense because it does. Rec- because when it again, when it comes to the rank and file and millions of voters, this is the this is the narrative now. Um, and so instead of having this kind of, you know, as you say, Trump willing this alternative reality, Trump has told this lie, and a bunch of people around him who know it's a lie, who know the truth, who know exactly how much he lost by have all kind of looked at each other shrugged their shoulders and said well if this is what it takes to stay in washington i guess we're gonna have to push this lie too and that's really the the most shameful and and i think one of the most shocking parts of all this is is not that trump has lied and people believe he's been lying for years and people believe him you know i'm the richest man in the world and i have all this money and i mean he's been caught in lie after lie after lie that 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 symbiotic relationship between Trump lying and his followers believing him goes back years. But the people in the Republican Party, the elected Republicans who know better and actively deciding that they have to just keep pushing this lie because they don't want to tangle with a base that scares them and and that could potentially primary them and send them home is really, I think, the hideous part that the future historians are going to look at and say, how how could that have happened?
0: But it seems the other weapon that he uses to intimidate the Republicans and, and maintain their support in the House and Senate is, if you go back to the early days, Jeff Flake took a moral position and attacked him because of Trump's moral turpitude, to put it mildly, and he was booted out and a whole bunch of other critics were as well. And now you fast forward to the last man standing in terms of a critic in the Senate who, Mitt Romney, is just retiring. I mean, he's spending something like $5,000 a day on personal security. Because mm-hmm. not only if you criticize and attack Trump, he goes after you to the point where he sort of doxes you and sets his mag of thugs onto you to the point where your, your life's in
3: danger. Well, and this is again why so many of us are warning about an authoritarian danger. This is what authoritarians do. This is what I, I've written that I think Trump has finally crossed the line into fascism. I mean, this is the kind of fascist thuggery that people engage in to intimidate um, their opponents. But I, I, I think um, <clears throat> when you mention somebody like Jeff Flake, the the more powerful weapon that that Trump has right now is that. He controls enough of the most active part of the Republican base that he can threaten to primary you out of your seat. But again, let's not make him ten feet tall. At almost all of the candidates that Trump has supported since he was booted out of office have lost. Um, you know, he's not a kingmaker. Um, Trump has, you know, given his endorsement and blessing to a lot of candidates are now former candidates who are no longer in public life, but he can make your life miserable enough as a Republican by forcing you to contend with this activist base that will run kooks against you, that will harass your family, that will harass your staff and you know just generally make it so that, you know, why would you stay in public service? And, and I think that's the conclusion Mitt Romney reached. He's Like, why, why am I bothered doing this?
0: Right, but I I agree with you, Tom, that you shouldn't make him 10 feet tall. And, in fact, I'm reminded of Beretold Brecht's play, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Wee, that reduced Hitler down to a small-time racketeer in the Chicago markets trying to muscle his way into capturing the cauliflower concession at the market. And Brecht's intention was to reduce Hitler down to the kind of man that he was, this failed artist and, and, and this little man. And Trump is a very, very small and insecure man. I mean, who else goes after all kinds of critics and the late night television hosts for petty grievances and slights that he feels? I mean, he is a weak, strong man, isn't he?
3: Yeah. You know, when um, one of the reasons I think that, that Trump never managed to turn his movement into a kind of fully realized Authoritarian mass movement, or even a fascist movement. You know, the, the it's it's going to sound strange to say something even mildly complimentary about people like Mussolini or Hitler. But as as petty and as silly as they were, they were intelligent people. They were also workaholics, um, and with a certain amount of physical bravery um, to them. Trump is cowardly, unintelligent, and and above all, he's lazy. Uh, but. The danger is not that Trump will suddenly develop a work ethic and you know start reading books and um, you know somehow become this uh, fearsome public presence, but there are people around him who have decided to study carefully the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of the American system of government, and they are actively plon- pl- uh, plotting to use those vulnerabilities to their advantage. Um, when I wrote about the military in the Atlantic. Um, the people with the US military are patriots. They're loyal to their country. But Trump Trump's people, I think, have figured out that you only have to control a handful of appointments at the very top of the Defense Department and then rely on the chain of command to make everybody fall in line. The same in the Justice Department. The, the last time they tried to take over the Justice Department, it turned into a Keystone Cops routine with people you know, kicking guys like Jeffrey Clark out of the office and telling him go back and go get a good lawyer. Um, but now they're figuring out, you know, we're not going to have those adults in the room. We're not going to allow people in the room, um, who are going to say things like, we're not doing that, Mr. President. They're, they're studying this carefully. My, my colleague, David Frum has a great line about this that I keep stealing from him. Um, he said, this time the velociraptors have learned how to turn the doorknobs. Um, and I think that's the thing to, to really be worried about, not Trump's particular, charisma or sway because that's actually on the decline and i think people before they become too fatalistic or disheartened um you know trump goes out he doesn't draw the crowds he used to um he goes out there and he endorses people and then they lose um and so i think you know people need to understand that you can still defeat this guy by voting but it's also important to understand that he lost in 2020 um very narrowly you know i know a lot of folks like to focus on the um, popular vote, but he shaved it pretty close in the Electoral College, and that's going to happen again. So especially in those swing states, people need to really get out the vote and, and make sure that their neighbors and friends understand what's at stake here.
0: Exactly. It's about 44,000 votes in those key swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And by the way, an analysis of who voted to give that give Biden that narrow margin in the Electoral College, Indicates that they were disaffected Republicans. So, if right. you give the disaffected Republicans and independent a choice apart from Biden, like the No Labels, third party, or or RFK Jr., or whoever else uh, is running, then and even Liz Cheney, perhaps, although she's smart enough to say, I don't want to be a spoiler. Or she's you know, unselfish, unlike the others who, you know, like the Jill Stein's and those people, who for the life of me I don't understand what they're all yeah. about. So that's what worries me at times. It should it, worry you.
3: you know. it, it's it should worry you. I mean, these third parties, and particularly, I think, no labels, and of course Jill Stein and others. I think they're they're trying to get Trump elected, right? Um, because they know exactly what kind of spoiler role they're going to play in again within the electoral college in places like Arizona. Or Wisconsin. And um, I think I just, you know, have to hope that our fellow citizens don't fall for that trick yet again, as they did in 2016. Um, But I think that's one of the reasons that that um, the Atlantic did this issue to to put it as our our editor in chief, Jeff Goldberg, put it. um, He said, you know, to be able to put it out there all in one place and then for people to be able to ask each other, is this really what you want?
0: So just in closing, then there's a, there's been pushback in defence of Trump from Senator J D Vance, who has written a letter to the Department of Justice and to the, the Department of State, effectively trying to turn the tables on uh, on Kagan and his wife Victoria Newland, at the State Department, and Trump's trying to do the same thing. He's trying to call, he's trying to label Biden as being anti-democratic and wanting to have a dictatorship which is what psychologists call projection. But what mm. do you think is going on with J.D. Vance? He's not stupid, but he's a very dangerous guy, as far as I'm concerned.
3: Well, J.D. Vance is just a tragic case of someone who came from humble beginnings and then became really just turned on the people that I think um, needed him most, in you know, the, the working class of uh, Appalachian, Ohio. And... Um, I mean, he's a clown, but he's a dangerous clown because, as you say, Ian, he's a very smart guy. He knows exactly what he's doing and he's trying to play the role of a Trumpist bully of, you know, I will sick the Justice Department on you. A lot of that is just performance art and and he knows it. Um, again, I think that's always what makes it worse is that that people like Vance know exactly what they're doing. Uh, but it's also a warning ahead. I mean, you know, if Trump, if uh, Trump's president, and Trump installs some goon or crony in the Justice Department, um, and J.D. Vance says, let's have some fun, you know, annoying uh, and and trying to wreck the lives of people at the Washington Post, and, so, and says, let's investigate them. Some guy at the Justice Department said, great idea, Senator, let's do that. Um, right. and, and I think, you know, again, why? It's not because J.D. Vance believes in any of this stuff. What J.D. Vance believes in is being a U.S. Senator, and he likes living in Washington, and he wants to stay there. And he wants to pass a lot of laws that will be to the advantage of him and his, you know, backers like Peter, Peter Thiel and others. Um, He's not there to help the people of Ohio. He's there to help people named J.D. Vance. And if that's what it takes, then that's what he'll do. And I think that's what makes all of these Republicans, Vance, Stefanik, um, McCarthy, the, the 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 unlamented former speaker leaving Congress. You know, that's what made them also dangerous is that that single-minded self-absorption that says we'll do whatever we have to do to stay in power.
0: Well, Thomas Nichols, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Tom Nichols, who's a staff writer at The Atlantic and a professor emeritus of national security affairs at the United States Naval War College. He previously taught international relations and Soviet Russian affairs at Dartmouth College and Georgetown University, and is the author of Mm -hmm. The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. And his new book is Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. And his latest <laughs> article at The Atlantic is what Trump's second term could look like. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with Biden vetoing a UN resolution to stop the war in Gaza because he is sticking with Netanyahu, like Vice President Humphrey stuck with LBJ in 1968. Make Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Michael Kazin, a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor-emeritus of Dissent Magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed the Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, and The American Fight for Peace, 1914-1918, to 1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. He is a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History, and his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party, and he has an article at the New Republic, I Opposed Humphrey in 68, All I Did Was Help Prolong the Vietnam War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Michael Kazin.
2: Thanks, Ian. It's good to be here again.
0: Well, thanks for joining us. and. Of course, the United States found itself in the unenviable and somewhat disgraceful position of having to veto a ceasefire resolution in the United Nations before the Security Council, which gave Russia the opportunity to castigate the United States for aiding and abetting a massacre of Palestinians, while, of course, the Russians are massacring Ukrainian civilians, but nevertheless, it's a huge black eye for the United States and uh, and not surprising and somewhat inevitable. Um, So what's your your sense of the extent to which this is going to dig the hole deeper uh, for Biden and alienate more and more younger voters who are desperately needed if Biden is to win in 2024? And if he doesn't, of course, we'd then have America's first fascist president, and probably a, our last
2: election. Well, I'm not sure it'll be the last election. We'll have to see about that. But uh, I wrote the piece because I was a young radical. Um, in 1968, I was 20 years old, and I couldn't vote yet because the voting age was still 21 uh, until the early 1970s. But I was so angry at the Johnson administration, which included, of course, Hubert Humphrey, who was a Democrat nominee in '68, that... I basically told people not to vote uh, or to vote for a third-party candidate like, the, like like Dick Gregory, the comedian, who was actually on some ballots back then. But uh, you know, I wrote the piece. You know, some people say it's sort of okay, boomer piece. You know, uh, young people don't like to be lectured to by their elders, uh, obviously. Uh, but uh, I do think that those folks who I think uh, justifiably are very critical, even angry at. Uh, what uh, the Israeli Defense Force is doing in, in Gaza, um, which is not really putting uh, Hamas in any serious way, from what I can tell is probably helping Hamas uh, recruit more people. Um, but I think it's a serious error to say, well, because the United States um, is is following its long policy, uh, rightly wrongly, of supporting Israel, uh, and though Biden is you know, saying some, some things, other people have been saying some things to try to mollify that uh, sentiment. Nevertheless, um, that anger, I think, would be a serious mistake for the anger to lead young people or really anybody uh, who's on the progressive side of things, uh, young or old, to uh, not vote or to vote for a third-party candidate. Because if, in fact, the two candidates are Biden and Trump, which seems very likely they're going to be. Trump is so much worse in so many ways, including uh, in his attitude towards the Palestinians, including his attitude towards uh, the Israeli government, which he's very, you know, fond of. He's a big fan of Netanyahu and vice versa, as you know. Um, So I basically think, you know, it's not a, a complicated point, I think. But nevertheless, I hope an important one that when you have. Uh, uh someone as flawed but nevertheless has done a lot of good things like joe biden uh and the social forces behind uh a democrat victory are social forces that you know people on the on the left generally support and are part of uh uh if you don't vote for the democrat then uh the republican has much better chance to win especially now as you've seen in recent polls uh trump is actually ahead by three or four points depending on what polls you look at um And so the chances of a Trump presidency are quite real. Um, And to say, well, I'm mad at Biden, I'm mad at Trump, I'm not going to vote, that's that's not, I think, a responsible position for an American to take.
0: But there does seem to be at least a connection here between the extent to which Hubert Humphrey, the vice president, hugged LBJ, who was increasingly unpopular because of the war, and eventually quit. And the extent to which Biden is hugging Netanyahu, and Netanyahu is taking him down.
2: Yeah, uh, well, it's not the only thing taking him down. Obviously, Biden has other problems besides that. But uh, you know, I do think that um, you know Humphrey actually towards the end of the '68 campaign, I mentioned this in this piece in the Republic, did try to move away from uh support for Johnson's policy. He called for a bombing halt uh in Vietnam. Uh he wanted, you know, the US to more aggressively seek peace. Uh which was actually undermined by by Richard Nixon, um, who told uh then the Prime Minister uh of South Vietnam to the too uh not to negotiate, not to uh do anything that would uh, make it easier for Humphrey to win. Um uh, oh, that, that was but,
0: Kissin- Kissinger's back, t- backroom deal, yeah. right with Madame Chiang yeah, you
2: and other folks exactly. Uh, but uh, you know the the problem we have, uh, people you know on the broad left, which is most of the people listening to the show, I, I assume, um, is that we don't have you know the choice we'd like. And I think generally too, I think there's a problem. A lot of people. It's not just people on the left. Americans think when they vote for president, this is like a personal decision. It's all about what they like and what they don't like. Um, and, you know, sometimes in a banal way, people say, Oh, who do I have a beer with? You know, uh, who do you like on television? You know, to me, that's irresponsible. When you vote, you're voting, um, as I said before, to, to, um, empower certain social force in society, you know, working people want unions, African-Americans, uh, women who want the right to abortion, uh, and, uh, you are opposed to people on the Republican side, uh, who are opposed to everything that, that progressive support. So, um, when you vote, you should think more about, you know, the impact you're going to have on the country as a whole, rather than, you know, what you like and don't like, this is not a, a consumer choice. You know, what kind of soda you buy or what kind of, uh, bread you buy, or what kind of cereal you buy. That's, that's fine. It doesn't matter. You know, um, But when you vote, it's a civic act, and you should think about the good of uh, the country as a whole, and the world, for that matter.
0: And just to touch on Humphrey, probably, had he been elected, he would have been the most left-wing American president in history, perhaps. I mean, his politics are very close to Bernie Sanders uh, uh, today. He was an extremely decent liberal guy. And, well, uh, I'm,
2: I'm glad i'm glad you said that yeah in my book uh, what it took to win the history of the democratic party that you mentioned um i i actually read the platform the 68 platform the democratic party and it's you know it's uh sounds a lot like uh you know trying to make the u.s into denmark or <laughs> or norway or something like that you know is it you know national health insurance uh housing subsidies uh um higher minimum wage uh and so forth so it really was a very progressive platform but of course. Look, Humphrey, you know, has to be blamed for being a toady to LBJ throughout most of, of his time as vice president. I mean, that, there's no defending that.
0: Right. But that's the nature of the job, isn't it? I mean, Kamala <laughs> Harris is not going to speak out against
2: Biden in any way. No, you're right. You're right. And look, if if he had broken from Johnson sooner, uh, he would have lost some people, certainly. But he would have, I think, made it easier for young people like me. Well, I didn't have the vote, as I said. I was too mm-hmm. young. But for, for younger people who do have the vote... Uh, who were very opposed to Vietnam War to, you know, swallow their pride and their and their sense of morality and 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 vote for him anyway. And, uh, and there were some states that were pretty close. Uh, I mentioned the piece. Uh, uh, not Actually, I took this out, head out, but yeah, uh, I, I ended up if, if uh, there were four states which made a difference, but the difference in those four states was very small. It was all about eighty thousand votes altogether. Uh, and if and if Humphrey had won those votes, he would have uh, he wouldn't have won the election. In the right. states he would have won the election.
0: So Nixon's victory was narrow, as you mentioned, 80,000 votes in, in Missouri, New Jersey, Ohio, and Alaska. Um right. And that would have given Humphrey a majority in the Electoral College. But in terms of y- your actual participation in not just voting against uh, Humphrey or not voting, I mean, what did you end up doing? Did you not vote or...? Or vote well, for third fact, party. I was I,
2: I wasn't, I wasn't old enough. You were are you were 20, you
0: weren't even old I, I was yeah.
2: 20 and the, uh, and the voting rates was then 21. Right. It didn't change until the right. amendment that was ratified in the early 70s, right. which which put it down to 18. But no, I was quite, I quite actively <laughs> tried to sabotage Humphrey's campaign. Uh, I was a member of a group called Students for Democratic Society, which was the leading uh, white and left group in the late 1960s. And mm. Um, we organized a march. I was uh, in college in, in Boston at the time. We organized a march up to the Boston State House, uh, chanting, uh, vote with your feet, vote in the streets. <laughs> in other right. words, don't vote, just go out and demonstrate. And you know, there are a few other marches like that around the country. And uh, I knew a lot of people who, were, who could vote in their 20s, graduate students, professors, mm. who didn't vote uh, or voted for a third-party candidate because they just couldn't pull the lever for Humphrey, who had supported the war.
0: Right. And in August of at sixty-eight, you traveled to the Democratic Convention in Chicago to protest Humphrey's impending n- nomination for the White House, and, and you got arrested there, right?
2: Yep, I did. Uh, I went with other people from STS, from Students of Democratic Society, to try to convince uh, spores of, of Eugene McCarthy, who was still sort of in the race uh, as, the, as a major anti-war candidate uh, uh, running against uh, Humphrey, because convince the, quote, McCarthy kids, uh, as they were called, to to give up the possibility of making change through the system and become radicals like I was, and, and like uh, most people in STS were at the time.
0: Yeah, I guess the... Um, and, yeah. I was going to say, no, I a- think most people forget how different things were back in the 1960s uh, in terms of our politics, how the left and the Democrats dominated our politics and the Supreme Court. And the point that you make is, in the article, I just, I'll just i just read a little bit of it, Michael. I remain as committed to the ideals of the left as I was back in 1968. But back then, in my small, disruptive fashion, I may have helped elect a president who ended the era when liberals dominated American politics and acted policies like the Civil Rights Act and Medicare that benefit tens of millions of people. Under Richard Nixon, the nation began to move rightward a shift from which we are still struggling to recover. Well, we are just going so far to the right. I mean, we've never had any anybody like Donald Trump. He controls the Republican Party and it's just shocking. And, and of course, you've got a, a right-wing Christian nationalist now in charge of the House. It couldn't be any worse. And it all began with Nixon. So that was a critical moment, right? 68. And now 2024 is, I think, going to be an equally critical moment. What do you think?
2: I think that's probably true. Yeah, and uh, next year is going to be, <laughs> to quote Trump, uh, uh, before the January sixth uh, uh, insurrection, uh, it's going to be wild. I'm afraid. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of. I think it'll be close. I hope it'll be close. If it's not close, then Trump will win easily. I'm afraid, and because Biden certainly is not going to win, uh, you know, easy easy reelection, and and uh, there'll be demonstrations on both sides. Uh, you know, there's a lot of fear in the country right now. Uh, I think of on both sides, uh, in different ways. And I think at a time like this, you know, uh, individual decisions that people make uh, at the voting booth and otherwise, in terms of what they say and what they are uh, convincing other people to vote, um, is a crucial, you know, and, uh, you know, one can't just stand by and, 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 and damn both houses, you know, there sometimes lesser evil is a lot less of an evil. <laughs> and I think that's really true, uh, today. It was true in 68 too, even though Nixon, Back then, as you know, uh, you know, he was not as as right wing as the Republican Party is today. Uh, he did accept a lot of the Great Society and New Deal programs because he thought they were impossible to to repeal. And uh, he did say he was going to get uh, the country out of Vietnam, but in fact, the war continued for another four bloody years after he became president, uh, killing almost as many Americans and probably more uh, Vietnamese and Laotians and Cambodians than actually died uh, under Johnson's uh, administration. Right. But
0: just to touch on how critical 2024 is, we barely survived a coup attempt on January the 6th. And like Hitler, Trump is telling us what he plans to do, you know, round up everybody, and we're all vermin. And on day one, enact the Insurrection Act, use the military to round up his enemies. I mean, I just don't understand. You know, Liz Cheney's out there on the stump publicizing her book. She's arguing that we're sleepwalking into dictatorship. Now, when I mentioned earlier that Trump would be America's first fascist president and maybe 2024 would be our last election, you suggested otherwise. So what do you think?
2: Well, about- uh, I mean, this is, I don't know if you want to get into the the uh, debate about the F word. <laughs> right. Uh, no, I do, because this, this, I, I use it a lot. word, yeah. It, yeah. I mean, I think – look, I mean, fascism, of course, is a historical phenomenon, and, and um, uh, it was uh, characterized by obviously a very strong uh, leader uh, who people had um, – most people of the country had tremendous faith in. Uh, almost uh it was a sanctified figure almost um very strong militarist ideology and a strong very strong build-up of military uh and and a crackdown on democratic norms of all kinds on free speech uh, uh free assembly everything else uh you know authoritarianism uh, um on steroids <laughs> um trump i think um he certainly uh his is deified in some ways uh, by uh, a lot of the followers but certainly not all uh it does, it does have militaristic language, uh, but, um, hasn't made clear at all yet that he wants to cancel elections. Uh, I don't think he'd have the power to, you know, uh, cut down on the, to do away with the courts and who defend the first amendment. Uh, so I think, uh, and also very importantly, Mussolini and Hitler and other fascists, uh, Franco in, in Spain, they believed in something. What does Trump believe in? He believes in himself. He believes in nothing but power. Uh, so it's really possible that, that uh, he will try to do uh, some of the things that other fascists have done when he uh, – if he's elected, re-elected. But I think it's more likely that he'll be restrained from doing those things by some of the checks and balances we do have in the system. Um, right. And uh, now I'm, that's a hope, but I think especially because a lot of the country, even if he wins uh, – uh, a lot of the country will still be very opposed to him, uh, which is which not true of Hitler and Mussolini. They had, you know, people opposed po- to Hitler and Mussolini had to go underground, basically, or else they would have been in jail. And that's not, and, and Trump's not going to be able to put millions of people, in, millions of Americans who voted against him in jail. That's just not going to happen. Uh, there's no support for that, even among most Republicans. Uh, so his rhetoric is one thing, and what he'll be able to do is, is something else. And uh, now, again, I'm being optimistic here, but uh, I do think that, you know and also is Trump gonna be able to stay in power after four years uh, as you know we had this amendment mm-hmm. that was passed when Republicans were in charge uh, of the Congress in the early 1950s they didn't want another FDR so so uh, that would restrain him too it's not not so easy to pass a to repeal a constitutional amendment He has to do that I think uh, to run for right. a second term um, so you know I'm I i do not want another I don't want to exaggerate uh, he's bad enough uh, without Without saying he's going to do away with democracy, I think. Um, and uh, but, but you know, with the articles, because on the issue of of uh, the war in in Gaza, as terrible as it is, as much as I do disagree with the policy that Biden's following, uh, it's not the same as Vietnam. Uh, U.S. does not have five hundred thousand troops <laughs> it's helping the Israelis. Of course, uh, we're a military supporter, uh, and uh, and that's and that's it. And. Uh, I, I, I wanted people to think about the parallel. You know what can happen if uh, you sit on your hands and don't uh, uh, and don't vote, and the person you would m- much least like to win uh, actually does win, because that is very likely to happen in next year.
0: Right. Well, so he's not a fascist, but he's a wannabe despot who admires people like Putin and, uh, and Erdogan and Obama <laughs> and. and even though he talks about uh, I'm, I'm an enemy of the people I'm, I'm not very reassured that on day 1 as he said he will invoke the insurrection act and round up his enemies um i'm not entirely convinced that uh, that he should not be taken seriously i think he should be taken seriously just as uh, oh, not, we I failed to take to take seriously. hitler, I hitler think, seriously you know
2: i, I just think there be a lot more resistance uh than than uh there was to uh, Hitler and Mussolini. I mean, those countries were, were in terrible shape at the time when they took over, uh, you know, psychologically, we're not in good shape, but, you know, the economy's in good shape, macroeconomy, uh, and, macro economy, and pe- people have in a sour mood, but they're not in the mood to do away with democracy, I don't think. Um, right. And, in fact, Trump, Trump himself, you know, says he's a defender of democracy. He thinks, you know, I won the election. He um, took it away from me, you know, which is horrible and a, a total lie. But it's also a way, in a funny way, backhand a way of respecting democracy, I think, uh, saying, well, if you counted the votes accurately, I would have won. Not that democracy is, is, is a bad thing, which is what fascists you know, historically believe. They believe democracy is inefficient and, and uh, you need strong men to make the decisions for the people, not the people themselves to make the decisions.
0: Well, I thank you for joining us here today, Michael Kaysen.
2: Uh, thanks. Sir. I always enjoy being on your show, Ian.
0: Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Michael Kazin, who's a professor of history at Georgetown University and editor emeritus of *Descent* Magazine. His books include American Dreamers, How the Left Changed a Nation, The Populist Persuasion, War Against War, The American Fight for Peace, 1914 to 1918, and A Godly Hero, The Life of William Jennings Bryan. And he's a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and editor of the Princeton Encyclopedia of American Political History. And his latest book is What It Took to Win, A History of the Democratic Party. And he has an article at the New Republic. I opposed Humphrey in 68. All I did was help prolong the Vietnam War. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now.